And now, proper propaganda. With that said, if you're just tuning in to Civic Cypher, I'm your host, Ramses Ja. Yes, he is, and I am Q Ward. You are listening to Civic Cypher. Mm-hmm. Uh, still got a lot more show to stick around for. We will be talking about the L.A. City Council meeting that turned racist, unfortunately. We knew this day was coming. <laughs> and uh, we have to talk about it, you know? And I think uh, this, this honestly, it makes me glad that we have this show because no one else can give it in these spaces. No one else can give it what it needs in terms of like, hey, we really need to address this. We can't just sing and dance our way through this one. We have to actually talk about it. So we will be talking about that. Um, we also are going to be talking about uh, Mahalia Jackson for our Way Black History Fact um, and how she sparked uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Um, and that's a really cool story um, that uh, Maggie B. Nolan wanted, she us, do. wanted us to talk about. So uh, first and foremost, let's discuss how to become a better ally. Um, B-A-B-A, today's Baba is sponsored by the Black Information Network Daily Podcast. You can find that on iHeartMedia um, or at BINnews.com. We are having discussions and interviews on topics and news stories important to the Black community. Um, today's show comes from our very own Ms. Maggie, a.k.a. at Maggie B. Nolan on IG and all platforms. She do. So, she wants you to learn how the media system fuels anti-Black racism. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So there's a great place to check out at freepress.net. It's by our friend, Colette Watson, exploring how the United States' dominant media system has propped up racial oppression throughout history and continues to today. And we invite you to check it out. As an active ally, understanding this history of harm perpetuated by the U.S. news and media industry and the solutions for modern media justice today is critical. Make sure you are fully informed and best poised and positioned for constructive allyship in action. Content is king in many ways these days. Now more than ever, representation and diversity in all categories of information is invaluable, as is your comprehensive support. Your eyes, your ears, your clicks, your reviews of these platforms and publications all matter. And so do your dollars. Black News and media entities like the Kansas City Defender, uh, Media 2070, Free Press Sheen Magazine, and... Of course, us here at Civic Cipher, your donations, your downloads, your subscriptions, your purchasing of our products and services, all of these actions go a long way. And I'll add sharing as well. And yes, other people know. And on behalf of all Black News and media, we extend our gratitude and appreciation. Um, so normally we have something else, but that came from Maggie and uh, I kind of love it. Thank so, you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, You're indeed. far too kind. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's get to it. L.A. City Council meeting turns racist. All right. I'll start by reading. This comes from the L.A. Times. Uh, Headline reads, racist remarks in leaked audio of L.A. council members spark outrage, disgust. Behind closed doors, Los Angeles City Council President Nuri Martinez made openly racist remarks, derided some of her council colleagues and spoke in unusually crass terms about how the city should be carved up politically. Martinez made racist remarks about council member Mike Bonin's young son, while others chime in during this section of the conversation. The group was discussing a dispute between council members Kieran Price and Marquise Harris Dawson, 
who were at odds last year over whose district would represent USC and Exposition Park once the new maps were finalized. During the conversation with council members Gil Cedillo uh, and Kevin DeLeon and Los Angeles County Federation of Labor President Ron Herrera Martinez described the bone-in at one point as a little B-word. Martinez also mocked Oaxacans and said, F that guy, he's with the blacks. While speaking about Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon, who was another council member, um, De Leon appeared to compare Bonin's handling of his child to Martinez holding a Louis Vuitton handbag. De Leon said Bonin, who is white, is like the fourth black on the council and implied he wouldn't stand by Latinos. Uh, the conversation took place October uh, 2021 and focused heavily on council members' frustration with maps that had been proposed by the city's 21-member redistricting commission. Along with revealing cruel, racist comic comments, the leaked audio offered a rare window into the behind-the-scenes uh, machinations of the redistricting process and the bare-knuckled fighting between various groups trying to secure political power. Okay. Now I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to talk about this. So, I'm from L.A. City of Compton? Yes. Um, I grew up around black people and Mexican people. Um, I have no aversion to Spanish. I'm a little unique in that way because my grandmother was from Cuba. And uh, my first language that I spoke was Spanish. Don't ask me to speak it now. But if I needed to, I could get by. Don't worry, I just sound like a three-year-old. Um, my cousins, blood cousins, Juan and Tanisha, um, identify as Hispanic. Um, their mother is black, but their father is uh, a Mexican man. And they both visibly look to be more Hispanic. Um, uh, that's not to say they don't claim, you know, both sides. It's just, you know, that's the way the world treats them. It's just kind of how that goes. Um, I have two sons. Both of my sons are half Mexican. Um, I know you're going to want to add that. So go ahead and add it. As are both of my children, okay. half Mexican. Okay. And uh, my childhood memories, my friends, then and now, and well into the future, we'll all be um, mixed up. And that will include a not insignificant at all amount of Hispanic Latino uh, people. Um, so it's, it's like family. It, and, and it literally is family. You know, my, my, my son, my, you know, like my cousin, you know, literally family. And then you know how I am with my friends that you know when you're in you're in right so this is the man who is going to give his thoughts i need you to know that because i'm about as close as you can be to something like this and not myself be a hispanic person i also am as close to this as you can be because i do this show i, I walk this path and i am a black man and i also recognize what california wants to be 
Um, again, I'm from this place. I was born in 1982. So um, the first part of my life, uh, everyone seemed to get along fine. Um, later on, these huge increases in the prison population because of the war on drugs, because of, let's be honest, uh, Clinton's policies. Um, and well, Reagan, Bush and Clinton. and Clinton. Yeah. But you know, during, you know, that time, it, but you're absolutely right. Reaganomics paved the way for all of this, hence the war on drugs and, uh, other factors, you know, um, created a boom in the prison population. Um, my, my brother explained this to me one day. Um, I have an older brother. His name is Raka Ira Science of the Dilated Peoples. They make the music for the show that, that, that you listen to every week. Uh, the, the rappers, that's the Dilated Peoples. And, uh, so my brother is, my literal brother is in the group. And, uh, he told me this. He says that, um, you know, what happens in prisons is folks tend to link up with people who look like them. Yeah, very, so for, very tribal. Right. And it's, just how it is it's really difficult to get away from that um but what happens is you know that environment is not the natural state of human beings right we are not meant to be in cages like that um and so our behavior our social skills tend to evolve in a very strange way when we are put in an environment like that is not our natural state but what happens is some of those people get in there and learn how to hate, become radicalized. This happens with our brothers and sisters uh, from the Caucasian tribe as well. Um, and what happens is they bring that, now that that prison culture has gotten so big in you know, the late 80s, all throughout the 90s and early 2000s, and even now, um, that prison culture ends up spilling out into the street as people tend to, you know, rotate back into society and or, you or attempt to anyway. Right. And so you have prison politics in an environment where people in theory would be free from that, be freer to be who they naturally would be freer to make children as my, my aunt and uncle did who are, mixed race uh, my my uncle by marriage uh his name was romero i love that guy man um i haven't seen him in some years but i did I, he was so cool man he wore a cowboy hat he was like real like macho you know he spoke spanish and it was, it was a g man anyway um and just be free to be who you are celebrate your culture alongside other people who are celebrating their culture and not hate it right what happens though is that that prison culture diffuses through um, communities and even works its way up to city council meetings, as we're seeing now. Because I don't believe that is the natural state of the Los Angeles City Council. We're talking about the late 1800s, early 1900s in New York City when there's, you know, Italians and that sort of stuff. I could see that a little bit more easy. But somebody who comes from Los Angeles, this feels very bizarre. Seems like you got something to add. I can learn. No, we can learn. And I think that's a, a large part of 
of not just what our audience gains from the show, but what we gain from it. Having these conversations forces us to become more informed, mm. more learned and more educated on the topics that we cover. Um, and if, if you listen to this show before, you've heard us speak about this, just like it's hard to not bring racism into these conversations. It is impossible to not bring up the impact of capitalism on these conversations when the resources are scarce and people have to fight over them. Just like in prison, people become tribal. They can in city council where they're, you know, redistricting and drawing maps to decide who's going to get money. Let's, let's call it what it is. Drawing those maps and re and, you know, reconfiguring the districts. You know, the reason why we're fighting over who gets USC, because USC's district is going to get more money. Right. So when you create a situation where the resources are scarce and people have to fight over them, people who would otherwise get along and thrive together now feel themselves pitted against each other. So that's why you hear that language about, you know, he's probably going to side with the blacks, mm -hmm. meaning the neighborhood where the black people lives will end up getting more money if that person votes that sure, way. Sure, sure, sure. Right. So when you when you create these circumstances, not just in city council meetings, not just in prisons, but in neighborhoods and in cities sure. and in this country where there has to be have nots and the haves have so much, everyone else is left to kind of duke it out over what remains Okay, from schools, our education system to city councils to government. I mean, our government has been so polarized and so divisive and, you know, so partisan that we no longer agree on anything like the definitions of things that have been fact our whole lives, because in order for my team to have the power, we just got to ride out on the other team. Yeah. And, I, and, and some people who really don't benefit from their team winning have been so, you know, and so put into this tribal divisive partisan mindset yeah. They're going to ride for their team no matter what right. so that their team can win, even if that doesn't benefit them in any way. So these situations, we talk about the 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 rate at which people go to prison in poorer communities, also tied to the scarcity of resources. Mm -hmm. The reason why some people don't go work at the places where you and I have worked before media was a thing and get on the corner and do what they feel like is a faster way to get more money, even though it's more dangerous and less safe. And the, you know, the, the chances that you're going to end up dead or in prison are high. Mm. I got to get this money however I can. Because yeah. my kids and or my parents might not be able to eat or go to the doctor if I don't do this. Yeah. So we create the circumstances that lead to black and brown people fighting each other. Because I'm trying to get this money from my district. And I don't want the blacks to get it over there. It's really, really a sad thing, but it's very, very impossible to ignore that capitalism, just like our prison industrial system, have a lot to do with these outcomes. And I'm glad you said that because you're absolutely right. Capitalism at the center of this um, is, a, is an awesome take on it. And it is painted more vividly when the social climate is underscored with basically a prison population problem, right? Um, over, over, what is it? Over in overly incarcerated, uh, imprisonment rates or something like that. I, f I forget the term, but it's something like that. And it's, it's a big deal around the country. We, we imprison, we have, I think 
yeah, the, we definitely have the highest prison population in the world, but we have like something like like so half the prisons are our, prisoners our, on earth yeah, or something our in the per US. capita incarceration rate yeah. is, is, is insane. Yeah. So out of this world. And we also have like police, like high police shootings, high every mass shooting, all this sort of stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I, I know I, I, this is very naive of me and it's an oversimplification of how to address these sorts of things. But uh, the quote unquote, one man, one vote approach to pretty much everything would, would change quite a bit. You know, if someone were to run for, you know, president of the United States and that was their platform, listen, I'm really going to change this country for the better. Let's do one man or woman, one vote. Um, and we can shape this country in the way that the people really want it to shape it. Then you would have something that really reflects a democracy. Now I recognize there's some people that are like, people don't know what they want. People are stupid whatever, that sort of thing. But at least we would have a better idea of what it is that people truly want. And it would eliminate these sort of this fighting, bickering, gerrymandering is a big thing that we push back against on this show because the black vote has been disenfranchised. Black political power has been challenged at every conceivable step uh, in the political process in this country since it was first uh, permitted. And, you know, we see that those challenges are uglier than ever um, now heading into midterm elections, which by the way, I voted today. Um, I voted early. <laughs> I sent my uh, ballot in. And if you are not voting in the midterm elections, then you need to sit on attack. All right. <laughs> All right. I, I was going to say something else, but I'm not going to say that. Um, okay. I'm going to keep reading because after this was uh, exposed, um, there are people on the city council who have still not resigned. You would think that's the first thing that you do. I've embarrassed myself. I've embarrassed my people. I've shown my hand. I've exposed a very ugly side of, you know, this process. And I was supposed to be the, the, the great solution. And I, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you would go through in terms of your soul searching as you came to terms with this disgusting behavior being made public, right? But I'll read, and this comes from NPR. Two LA city council members have lost their committee positions over race scandal. All right. The head of the Los Angeles city council stripped two members of much of their power Monday to pressure them to resign for participating in a private meeting in which they did not object to a colleague's crude and racist remarks and at times joined in the offensive banter. Acting Council President Mitchell Farrell removed Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon from committee chairmanships and assignments and named them instead to a board that rarely meets as he turned up the heat on the veteran Democratic po politicians. Quote, these members have lost all credibility, all standing, uh, O'Farrell said at a City Hall news conference. By losing committee assignments, their influence in City Hall has dwindled and they have largely become token figures unable to participate in the day-to-day -day work of the council and unwanted in council chambers where their appearance is likely to cause an uproar. The council has moved to censure Cedillo and De Leon, but doesn't have the power to remove fellow elected officials from office unless they've been charged with a crime. Latinos who make up nearly half the city's population only had four or just over a quarter of the 15 seats on the council at the time. Black people who made up less than 10% of the population have three, a fifth of the seats. Um, so we know that the 
the main woman who we don't use her name, main woman who was, you know, uh, almost all of the audio is her. Yeah. And she said in Spanish that, you know, the, the little black boy was a monkey or acting like a monkey, something like that. Um, she has resigned. She stepped down. Uh, but the other folks, again, who are participating in this and um, encouraging it, you know, uh, or did not move to stop or otherwise correct the behavior. Very, very willing, laughing. Sure. No, I get it. Participants. They sure. weren't lookers on. They weren't passive in it. They were in, they joined in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they are still technically on city council. And again, this is one of those things where it's like kind of hurtful. You know what I mean? It's one thing if like you make a mistake and you just take your lumps. It's another thing if you choose to stick around and remind everybody of exactly what you think of them. You know what I mean? And the, the really interesting part for those who kind of joined in I was at work. I won't say when and I won't say where because I don't want this story to be about anyone specifically but me. And in absence of anyone being present from the party that was being made fun of, I was there and I heard it and I did not defend them. And I felt like a coward. I felt like uh fraud because I like to think I think all of us have this version of ourselves that's heroic if that would have been me I would have that have been me that have been me I, you know <laughs> we all think that right but just like when someone tried to kidnap my son a moment of pause could have led to him being taken because you think if someone tries that I'll jump over this car and I'll that's what you think but when I turn around and I see this man reaching into my car to grab my son, I freeze. And once again, I feel like a coward. Right. I bring these examples up because I can not just forgive or sympathize, but empathize with someone who does not, who is not biased for action when something wrong has happened. We all think we would. Right. But in the situation I was in, it would have required me to challenge someone who probably could have fired me from my job. And you and I have both shown the world that there's only so far you can go where we will just say, forget this job and walk away. Yeah. Um, what this person said on his face, if I typed it out, wouldn't be offensive. But if you were standing there and you heard the joke, you know, for a fact that it was offensive, but it was offensive to parties that weren't present. So there was no one there to speak up for them except for me in my mind. There's 10 of us there. So anybody could have said something. But in my mind, the person that should have said something was me. You, yeah. However, if I laugh at or join in on this joke, it's different. It is a degree further. That's different. It is a few degrees further and it's beyond cowardice. Yeah. You're just as much as at fault. You're right. As the person that you're allowing it's, to get off this hate, this racism and this divisiveness. Yeah. It's, it's being complicit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, in those moments, I apologized to people that I knew who should have been represented in that space. Moreover, my children and their mother. Mm. 
so to, to paint a picture of how serious this was. And when they heard it, they're like, oh, that's no big deal. But to me, it was a very big deal. Well, um, I had to learn those lessons too. And I'm happy to say that more recently in my life, I have spoken up, not laughed. And if I can do it, you can do it too. And so can these people. But first, they need to step down and take their lumps. Absolutely. All right, let's move on. Um, yo, LA, we love you. Y'all figure that out. Okay. I'm throwing up the West Side again. Yeah, we yeah. Love you. Okay. Hispanic people, Mexican people, Latinos, Black people, white people, Asian people. Say it all. Or, all right. Original, yeah. Asian, say it all. Go ahead. Other, if you check that, we love you too. Yeah. And we we all in it together. All right. Stop all I just wish everybody would feel that way. Uh, they're going to feel it eventually. All right. Uh, today's Way Black History Fact, uh, sponsored by Hip Hop Weekly Media. This comes via biography.com. How Mahalia Jackson sparked Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Here we go. Long before his famous 1963 speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. He talked about the dream that the previous April at a 16th Street Baptist Church meeting in Birmingham, Alabama, of, quote, seeing Negro boys and girls walking to school with little white boys and girls, playing in the parks together and going swimming together. He continued that dream at a Cobo Hall speech in Detroit. That Cobo year. Hall. Cobo. Cobo Hall. Sorry. Speech in Detroit that June that he hoped Negroes would be able to buy houses or rent a house anywhere. Their money will carry them and they will be able to get a job. So for his biggest audience at the March on Washington, he didn't think it was worth dwelling on the dream on that hot summer's day in the nation's capital. In fact, the dream wasn't mentioned in the notes that laid atop the podium, and it wasn't in the plans for that day. Then gospel singer Mahalia Jackson, whose life was portrayed in the Lifetime original movie, Robin Roberts Presents Mahalia, changed the entire course of one of the most famous speeches in American history. Probably the most famous. I think I'd give it that. I'd give it that too without hesitation. Jackson had grown up singing in church uh, from and found mainstream success, paving a path for gospel music outside of churches. As an international star known as the queen of gospel music, who had sold out her Carnegie Hall concerts in New York City, she attended the 1956 National Baptist Convention, where she first met King. Soon, King started asking her to join him at civil rights events around the country. She put her career and faith on the line, and both of them prevailed. Jesse Jackson, who first encountered the singer in the 1960s, told NPR. As the granddaughter of an enslaved person, Jackson was committed to the movement, contributing financially as well. Quote, I have hopes that my singing will break down some of the hate and fear that divide the white and black people in this country. Unquote. She had said that uh, that mission was surely met, as Jesse told NPR. Quote, when there is no gap between what you say and who you are, what you say and what you believe. When you can express that in song, it's all the more powerful. Unquote. When it came time for King to choose a singer to perform at the Washington, D.C. March on Washington for Jobs and Reform, King quickly turned to Jackson. He requested that she sing the black spiritual song, I've been bucked, buked, sorry, I've been buked and I've been scorned. Um, which she passionately performed to the more than 200,000 people setting the tone. Understanding how much was at stake with the speech, King had started 
initial discussions about what he would say at the August march back in the spring of 1963. Even with all that advanced planning, 12 hours before the speech, King still wasn't sure what he would say. Everyone had a different take, saying that some felt it should have an ideological and political reform take, while others felt it should lean more toward a church sermon. With so many different opinions, King asked his team to draft up an outline. They came up with an opening analogy of African-Americans marching to Washington, D.C. to redeem a promissory note or check for justice, and no mention of a dream. When the team gathered again, the group started debating further about the elements that were missing, but King simply took the notes and headed back to his room, leaving them with, I'm now going upstairs to my room to counsel with my Lord. On the day of the now famous speech, soon after Jackson's rousing performance, Jones still didn't know what King was about to say when he stepped up to the podium. He started out with the bad check analogy that Jones had written. When he finished the promissory note analogy, he paused, and in that breach, something unexpected, historic, and largely unheralded happened. That was when Mahalia Jackson spontaneously shouted, Tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream. At that moment, everything changed. Sure enough, King went completely off the books. He was speaking spontaneously and extemporaneously, and his whole body language shifted, became more relaxed, and then some Baptist as some Baptist preachers do, he would take his right foot and started putting it up against his left leg. Some preachers do that as they're talking, and he began to preach. Inspired by those words, Jackson, from Jackson, King turned his, sorry, King turned back to the dream. Instead of looking down at his notes, he spoke from his heart, engraving that famous dream into the American history books. I say to you today, my friends, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. He said, it is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. The more he spoke about the dream, the more people felt the message. And now the speech itself is best known as the I have a dream speech. Later on, King addressed the impact of the moment. Quote, when I got up to speak, I was already happy. Uh, unquote. He wrote to Jackson on January 10, 1962. He continues. I couldn't help preaching. Millions of people all over the country have said it was my greatest hour. I do not know, but if it was, you more than any single person helped to make it so. In that same letter, he said, uh, he said she was a blessing to me as well as a blessing to Negroes who have learned through her not to be ashamed of their heritage. As for Jackson, it was in her very nature. But what can we do but help each other? She once said in an interview. Uh, she goes on, I don't go to these meetings that do a lot of blah, blah, blahing. If you're going to blob, put your money up there and do something. And that she did. So, um, I'll be honest, I didn't know that. I had no, I've never heard that never story heard it. in my life. Shout out to- uh, As a massive fan of Mahalia Jackson and of course of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Real quick, I need to say this. Shout out to Maggie B. Known for uncovering she that do. gym. Uncovering that gym. <laughs> I've been trying to tell you that. Yeah, man, I've, been, I've been listening. Be knowing. She does, man, she knew this one. So listen. Um, but wow, very powerful. And I think that this was perfect for today's uh, episode. Um, I, I listen to black women. Marty Mar, listen. Thank you. Um, and this nation should live up 
to its creed, to its ideas, uh, ideals, and at this, I think that this speech and this take on the speech certainly, um, it's, it's just very emotional. And it's such a hurtful thing to be from California to hear that lady say that stuff. That was very hurtful for me, and I'm proud of myself for having made it through it. So we'll leave it right there. How about that? <clears throat> um, what a heavy show, man. Aren't they always? They are always, but man, that like LA, that's home. I mean, we, you know how there's certain things that hold up your world. Like, hey, man, listen, we got each other. You know, we got to teach these folks, you know, but we got each other. You know, when that gets rattled, it's a little scary. You know what I mean? But we'll, we'll make it. And we are walking our path and we hope that you are walking our path with us or walking your path toward the same goal. Um, with that said, thank you for listening to Civic Cipher. I'm your host, Ramses Jha. He is Ramses Jha. I am Q Ward. This has been Civic Cipher. Please, folks, subscribe, like, comment, share. Be a better ally, please. And check out the store at civiccipher.com. Uh, shout out to our producer, Ms. Maggie, a.k.a. Maggie, you know, and she do. Um, and uh, I think that's about it. Until next week, y'all. Peace. Peace. Sidestepping the borders with press passes, we bring it to you as it happens. The streets love my crew for music and rapping. Street commander slash beat expander, here to fight the slander with the proper propaganda. What's happening? You got a question, then ask it. The news is just a TV show, get past it. And this from a quiet wartime journalist headlines. Wake up, refuse, and resist. Like this, like this, like this, like this. We kick.